Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Keep us sensible. True to your word and true to the righteousness of your son. And in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, I was, it was mentioned to me that although there was a hope for completion of the Sunday school room by this Sunday, something interfered with the sheet rocker's ability to get it done. So that's why it's not done. Plus our Sunday school superintendents in Philadelphia. I think they called superintendents. We're in 2 Peter, chapter 1. I've always, you know, been a fan of the Peters, the two epistles. Um, quite a bit of my weirdness of viewpoint comes out of 2 Peter and 1 Peter. But there's some very direct, especially here in this first chapter of 2 Peter, a very direct appeal with a delineation of what the direct appeal is about for the average believer. We're just doing 19 verses, but it's one of those passages where the things are so ultimate and the sentences are not going into great length on them, you have to watch how the sentences are constructed to see what your options are in understanding. So when he says in 2 Peter 1, verse 1, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when I go through, especially, I, it was, I was in this passage last five years ago. So, that seems recent at my age, but some, some of you it's, you know, a third of your life or quarter of your life. But I go back and I look at what I said or my notes from that sermon, and I I take the text because it's helpful for me not to have to re-get the text from offline or something like that. And, and so I just grab it and bring it over into today's sermon notes. And I go through and I highlight the whole thing and I eliminate all the bolding and the reds. And so it's just text again. So that the next time I go through it, I'm not being spun by my last time through it. So I was reading through this when it said a faith of equal standing with ours. That's sort of startling. Uh, you have Simon Peter, one of the well-known apostles. I think they have a basilica named after him, or many basilicas named after him. Um, supposedly the first pope. But, he is telling whoever he is writing, and it could be the same group he wrote 1 Peter 2, which was the exiles of the dispersion. Um, the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Probably the same set of people he's ministering to with 2 Peter. 
But it's to those who've obtained an equal standing of faith measured against the apostolic standing of faith. It's hard to claim those sorts of things about yourself. Somebody could. I mean, it's not that everyone, it's not saying all Christians get to claim equal standing of faith with the apostles. The people he was writing to were those who could claim that have obtained a faith that is of equal standing with the apostles. Now, the thing that then modifies it or, or, or throw, throws you a a different aspect. It says, a faith of equal standing with ours in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. <coughs> now you have a choice at this point. Suddenly you have to say either the, our faith equally stands in the righteousness or our faith is equal in the righteousness of no matter to me which you pick it seems to be saying you know if I were to tend towards something that the faith is in the righteousness of our God and Savior and it's a question that we don't often ask of faith we probably ought to ask it more um Faith is generally reserved for, do you believe that Jesus Christ was God himself? Do you believe that uh, the basic elements of the Christian story, uh, he was born of the Virgin Mary, crucified, buried, on the third day raised from the dead, ascended to be with the Father, whom thence he comes to judge the living and the dead, etc., etc. The storyline. But practically every day, our faith is not crying out that we affirm that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Nothing about that does anything. You, you, we think of our faith in the story as that which God asks of us that he would pour out his grace to us, that we would be saved. But in living in that faith, where a faith that is, has equal standing with the apostles these people Peter was writing to says you believe in the righteousness of God and Christ as much as we do and that's a question do you believe in the righteousness of God as much as the apostles do I know a lot of Christians who and I think really Christians are people who but when this question comes up they think God has it in for them God is the, either the ultimate buzzkill that, that if, you know, Lord, I'll go anywhere for you in the world except Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you sort of feel that God is going to send you to Tulsa. He's just that kind of God. You don't think he has your, you know, his goodness is towards you. His righteousness is towards you. What is he like? The very difficulty you would have Inventing a world, say you're a writer of fiction. Write a story in which the God of the universe could be evil. Try it. Nothing survives. Because the evil thing to do 
somebody to destroy you. Every chance he gets. Maybe just set you up a little bit just to destroy you. But whatever the case, everyone would be applauded for destroying one another. Everyone would be rewarded for being just awful bastards to each other. You would get in past you know, 17 minutes, you know, that'd be the length of the history of the cosmos. I've made it, everybody be bad. Knives would come out, everybody taking over other people's stuff. Now, you couldn't make a universe work designed on evil. Not that designing one on good works. The problem is, when you design it on good, there's evil possibility there. But what do you believe? Do you believe the righteousness of God? That's who he's writing to. Are you, are, are you, are you going to be hearing the right thing out of this? So just check yourself. Just say, well, I'm not one of those who believes in the righteousness of God and his Christ so I can nap for the rest of the sermon. Yeah, you probably can. Because the things offered here are for those people. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The people you believe in the righteousness of, God and his son Jesus Christ, are also going to be the grant you've already obtained a faith equal to ours in, these, in this agent's righteousness. Why don't I offer you grace and peace rooted in the knowledge of that God? And of all things, I, once you realize that the God who made the earth is a God of righteousness, and you believe in him, you realize where all your lack of peace, all the state of chaos you are in, comes from. You also know where all your guilt comes from, right? Because you haven't been behaving yourself. And you haven't been doing it his way. So the chaos and the guilt are answered by the grace and the peace. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Because as you get to know God and Jesus our Lord, as you get to know them, they are, in your viewpoint, because you are someone who believes in the righteousness of God and his son, Jesus, Christ, as you grow to know him more, grace and peace will be multiplied to you. That's what Peter wants to have happen. You will have God, the grace of withstanding temptation, the grace for you when you fall to temptation, the order of life that produces peace in the world God made. Again, our God could not be an evil God because order with the evil God would, of course, be destructive. And, but then order with it at all would be counterintuitive because that would be kind of good. And you don't want don't to be good. You want to be evil. We know that in this world we're free to make our moral decisions. Our chaos and our guilt are because we made the wrong ones. We can live in peace. You know you would like to be forgiven. That's why people come to Christ in the first place. They would like to be forgiven by he who they had offended. 
and the grace of Jesus Christ. And the knowledge of him produces the order that produces the peace. Now, this is, I'm keeping this very broad and general because Peter, the book itself is a simple structure. Uh, let's see, where is Peter in my Bible? There's Peter. There are three chapters. It's a short one. This first chapter, which we're going through most of it, we stopped just shy of the end of the first chapter, um, is this general, hey, why don't you live, think this way? Real broad, real, real broad. He says, because, you know, it matters who you listen to. It matters who you believe. Here in the first century, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who had witnessed the Lord's ministry, been taught by him, denied him three times, had all sorts of things happen to him in the book of Acts that he um, grew in great grace and became, um, uh, as you read from these, his two epistles, a great ministry to the church. He knew there were false teachers out there. The whole second chapter is about false teachers. The first chapter is about the true teaching. The second chapter is about the false teaching. And then I think the last chapter is kind of about the end of all things. It's a very simple book. So when I'm saying what your faith is in the righteousness of God, it matters that you stop and go, okay, I'm not just going to think, do I have faith in the Bible story? That simplifies it way too much. A little more complex, but not too complex. Your faith is in the righteousness of God. And he wants to teach you in such a way that you would be the recipients of greater grace and greater peace. His divine power, verse 3, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. It is helpful to look at a sentence. Did you notice what I bolded? To us, to us, you may. He is claiming, whence he is writing, us are participating in your life from this vantage that you may get this. I'm not saying that it's not le legitimate to say that you've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness, but he's not, not saying that. He's saying to us all things. Because remember, the us is an equal faith, equal, a faith of equal standing with ours. That's the us. The you may is you have obtained a faith that is equal standing with ours. So whether you call it the apostolic band or just the apostles themselves, whatever it is, it's the people that had life and godliness given to them in every measure, but in the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, who granted us his very precious and very great promises, that through these, now then he talks about giving them to the others, that through these you may escape. We have been given, Paul talks this way in Ephesians, 
but in various other places where he makes a distinction between he who's writing and what they have to give and what they are, who they are giving to. So when it talks about giving these, this knowledge of God and through it gaining the promises of God, then it talks about granting that to the believers that they may escape from the corruption that is in the world. Remember, everything is about who you listen to in this book. Do you listen to the apostles? Do you listen to the false teachers? He's making a case for why you listen to the apostles and not to the false teachers. Because they have it to give. You have the kind of ear that is responsive to what they're giving. You have a faith in the righteousness of God and you would be drawn by greater grace and greater peace. And we, he said, we have gotten that stuff. We've got the knowledge of God. We've got the promises of God that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the flesh. It's in the passions of the flesh. Which is an interesting thing to point out sometimes a part of a sentence helps you fill in your knowledge of God and the state of the world why is the world such a cesspool it's amazing what people are capable of I don't know what sins you think of when you think of the crisis of moral failure in the world but I'm sure you're all right But it's all because of passion. What does it say in James? From whence come wars and fightings among you? Is it not your passions that wage war in your members? People can't even get along with themselves or their best friend anymore because their passions are at war. And eventually the armies will be marching across Europe or Southeast Asia because of the corruption that is in the world because of passion. We have, uh, Black Kenny and I have been talking about this for weeks with uh, Drew, and uh, we've been trying to graph out or figure out the nature of the voices in your head that are truly yours. And you have a passionate voice, your body voice, that says, hey, I want her. I want the last bark chop. I want um, you to scratch that itch. Have you ever scratched an itch so much that you bled? I had an itch on my leg a few weeks ago. I must have scratched it to get rid of the itch during the night when I was unconscious of being itchy and unconscious of scratching because I woke up with gouges in my leg, bleeding. It was charming. Because your body says, I really want this done. I really want that other person that, you don't, that does not belong to you. I really want the last pork chop when somebody else might want the last pork chop. I want, that's all you want, your passions. Just dictate a list of urges. And if your mind is no bigger than that, because your mind part, your body is going, hey, fill this need. And your mind's going, oh, I didn't know there was some initiative here, some, some inertia going some ways. I, I guess you're the only thing that wants anything. Are you the kind of person who has faith 
in the righteousness of God? Are you the kind of person that wants his grace and peace given to you and the godliness that's attached to it? You've got to escape the corruption that is in the world because of your passions. Some other voice has to say something. Frankly, your brain's not big enough for this. You see that St. Paul in Romans 7. He says, I desire the law of God with my inmost being. I wanted to do what was right, but I could not do it. He was a Pharisee. He was a Jew. He was a, stu- he was a seminarian. He wanted to do the good. But he couldn't. We have a different path since we're pursuing the knowledge of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ, since we're pursuing the righteousness that is in him, the godliness that comes from that, we need to know where where those things sit. What, what language is being spoken to you and you? Because your body is just, it's not really at fault. It just has urgence, okay? It just wants Your soul is just a decision generator. It's your spirit. And your spirit was dead before it knew Jesus Christ. And your spirit is listening to the spirit of God to be trained how to be a spirit. It's it's your nature. Your your spirit is kind of your... uh, Well, you you don't want to make everything a tech reference, but it's helpful... Uh, the operating system. It's what you look at to guide. Well, you're, are you generally an upbeat person? Well, you know that when tough thing t- times come, you will have an upbeat reaction because you're kind of an upbeat person. That's your, your spiritual framework. It's not an urge answer. It's not a brain decisional answer. It's not a, a, a concept or a, a proposition. It's a way of being. And when you come to Christ, you have you come to Christ and you have bowed the knee before a God whose faith you have, your faith in him, is in his righteousness. And his righteousness is love, and his righteousness is joy, and his righteousness is peace, and his righteousness is patience, kindness. You could look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and go, oh yeah, it's those things. For this very reason, verse 5, says, we've got this stuff. You are these kind of people. Do you want more grace and peace? Okay, we've got the stuff. We're willing to give it to you that you may escape the corruption that's in the flesh because of passion. And you can become partakers of the divine nature in this life. For this reason, because that circumstance is going on, Make every effort to supplement your faith. Now there's a list here. I don't want you to think it is hierarchical or chronological. Though it starts with faith, it ends with love. You don't want to say, well, then if it's hierarchical, it's moving from least to greatest because love is the greatest. Chronological, you should, that's the sign that you're even a believer in the first place, that you love the brethren. Right? It's, think of it the, this way. 
these things are you're being encouraged to think of a particular thing in reference to everything. Um, it is not a long list that they're all connected, but each thing supplementing the other is a natural question you should ask of it. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then it says virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control. We're not talking about a sentence through all these things, but in every one of them, as you consider it, making every effort, these are natural things that you should think of when faith is on your mind. Because you know that faith without works is dead, right? James tells you that. You can't say you're a Christian unless you live like a Christian. You can't say I believe X when everything in your action shows that you don't. Your virtue has to answer. You make every effort when you are thinking of your faith to supplement it with virtue. And every time you're thinking about your virtue to supplement it with knowledge. Have you ever met somebody who is just virtuous and dumb as a bag of hammers? I have met these people. You like them. You go, oh, but can't you think a little bit more about what you're doing? Can't you be aware of what's happening? Realize more of God and more of the world? So that your virtue isn't running around being a do-gooder. Because those almost become busybodies. Almost become just a little too helpful. You want them to know. So you should supplement your virtue. Just like you should supplement your faith with virtue, you should, if you're considering your virtue, supplement it with knowing. And if you're thinking about your knowing, with self-control, that takes some thought. I have been in a lot of discussions in my life. And some of them are, you know, suppositional. Some of them are pursuit of answers, real answers, theological or biblical. Um, and uh, you can get really caught up in where your brain can go. Just like you want to tell a 14-year-old a boy to control himself. As it, isn't that in Titus, urge the younger men to control themselves? That's all you can tell a young man. Control yourself, for heaven's sake. Women aren't everything. Oh, but they are. But I love her. You kind of got to tell a theologically or philosophically minded person to control himself, too. Just, hey, control yourself. You got kids to love, wife to love. You've got people to be a grace to. You can't be rolling around in the, that moment of ideas. It's very satisfying to have ideas. And understand what it's like to be me. I've got all the right ones. Yeah, you guys are laboring under, you know, whatever. You know, some percentage of right. All of mine are right. I could be thinking about them all the time, just rolling around on the floor of my library. <laughs> Big pillows. Haze of smoke. Control yourself. There's stuff that everything isn't good things are not all, all things 
I just because knowledge is a good thing and very helpful in your virtue. Self-control will be very helpful in your knowledge. And self-control with steadfastness. Because sometimes people are thinking of locking down on what they need to tighten up on. And they don't realize, hey, we're in this for the long haul. You might not be dead till you're 95. Better get steadfast. Better have a way of control that isn't just taking cold showers and, and locking yourself in your room. Steadfastness with godliness. And godliness is usually a word that has to do with are you thinking like God? Not, not, it's not holiness. It's, uh, you could include holiness and godliness, but you sometimes it mentions them separately together. It's to think in God's way about the universe. And sometimes we think because, have you ever known people that had a virtue that was, you know, I really try to be a loyal person. Well, you're a Nazi, for heaven's sake. Well, but I'm loyal. Yeah, but you, did, you missed that earlier thing I said. Being steadfast, being, you know, being a rock rib, hold your own, to the end, always, you know, whatever you choose to be, politically or theologically. Do you think like God? Not only do you think like a human being, to keep your knowledge from being out of control, you learn to be a human being with it. You need to learn that it's not merely the secondary virtues like steadfastness, that it matters what you're steadfast about. And godliness with brotherly affection. Because there's something about our brothers and sisters in Christ that we have this kind of a treat that we get together every Sunday there's some more of us that are not here that we kind of like being with there's an affection there that isn't the result of me being good to you some of you it's me being good to you other people I like you who do I like my wife and let's see, Madison, Tristan, they pay me rent, so I like them. You know, you, you know, you enjoy standing around, and we have to chase you out of here, you know, so you leave, like, let's go home after church. So you, 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 that fellowship, the coffee time, whatever it is, that desire to get together for a meal in two weeks, because brotherly affection, it is not merely it was a good deed, or it's not merely that we were walking through life trying to think like God about it, so we walk into this room and try to think like God about each other. We actually have an affection that's developed because of the family of God that we have had. And then brotherly affection, you want to, you want to supplement it with love. If it's not available, if it's not available to be more than just affections of people getting along with each other, you may, after a certain point, probably even the Rotary or the Odd Fellows or the Eagles or whoever, your, whatever clubs you belong to, the Daughters of the American Revolution, get to like each other. We want to make sure we supplement affections with love. 
Because love makes sure we don't drop anybody out who's not clicking with us as readily. Because sometimes in the Christian body, you start to recognize the affection you have because Christ has brought you together, but some people are more so than others. There are the less lovable parts of the body of Christ, the less noble parts, the less valuable parts, and you've got a duty to love them too. You know, at some point you have a duty to love your enemies. So, there's that. But I want you to think about these things, not in sequence, but in terms of each one supplemented with the thing you're encouraged to supplement it with. Don't try to string it together in, in one long sentence. If you're able to do that, more power to you, tell me later. But I think they just stand there alone, each one with a supplement thought that you should be building yourself into. And that's just a broader feeling, whatever you think about how I put them together supplementally. You should be the kind of person that is putting something new to what you already have. Take your faith and add this to it. Take this and add this to it. What are you adding each time with the things you already have? If these things are yours and abound, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So this is, remember I'm saying this, this is the Christian life, first chapter of Second Peter. These are the things you should be after. Grace and peace, growing in that, believing in the righteousness of our God. Taking the apostolic teaching to benefit us in our godliness. Uh, here's a suggestion, do these supplemental thoughts. Because if I have them, I will be effective in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge. You should not be coming away from what you're doing in your Christian devotion without knowing. You should, at the end of 10 years, have 10 years worth of, I've been thinking about things, and these things are happening in me, and frankly, they are abounding in me, and consequently, I am being fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm you know, fruitful in my own life, how I treat people, in a, a, effective in other people's lives. And it's not saying that Christians can't be blind and short-sighted. As a matter of fact, it describes them here. If you don't see these things, you're blind. Therefore, brethren, because this is your choice, therefore, brethren, be the more zealous to confirm your call and election. For if you do this, you will never fall. There's a promise there. Never messing up. I, I know Christians who've argued theologically or personally well, there's no way, of, you know, what are you, a semi-Pelagian? Believe that Christians can live the Christian life? What do you think, you're, you could be sinless? You think you're sinless? My father suffered with it. He said, no, I'm just saying I think you can believe that God has given the grace and the knowledge to be sinless, to never fall. You have no circumstance in your life that requires that you be a bohunkus. It requires that you be a fool. 
that requires that you choose self and your passions and pick corruption and chaos over the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. If you do this, you will never fall. Not only that, so there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you're... A little, little uh, Christian, Christendom history. There were the Pelagians, okay? Pelagius was a, a, a Christian teacher from Britain, serv serving in Rome and various other, other places. And he, he was suspected of preaching holiness. Okay? Anybody who preaches holiness gets into trouble. They killed Jesus for it. Pelagius may have been wrong. He may have not been as wrong as they said he was. They suspected him of teaching that you could philosophically be obedient to God totally without ever becoming a Christian. If, they, if he taught that, he was wrong. He denied that he taught that. But it was believed that he taught that. He ended up being labeled a heretic. And then within a little bit of time, there were what called were called semi-Pelagians, John Cassian and others like him, who believed that a Christian with the grace of God in his life could live a holy life. They got into trouble. It's amazing how much of Christianity is devoted to keep holiness from happening. To even call it a heresy. Do you believe one in the righteousness of God? Is that the God you believe in? And so consequently, the godliness that comes from him will be in his righteousness. And the things you learn are to make you, set you free from the corruption and let you partake of the divine nature. So that you will never fall. And not only that, your entry into glory will be in triumph. What if you did a painting of that? I've seen paintings in Christian bookstores. Uh, one, I, 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 guy's talented, I don't know who it was. He's a guy, a masculine guy. T-shirt, of course, Levi's, faded. He's hanging there, he's hanging there like a broken man in the arms of Christ. Arm, Christ is holding him up. You don't see much of Christ because he's behind the guy. But he's holding him up, broken. The strongest of men, broken. Well, you've messed up. You're broken. Yeah, you need the Lord's grace. How would you like to have a painting there for the semi-Pelagians? Of you walking into heaven with a smile a mile wide on your face because I did it. I did what he told me. I did what was right. I pursued the understanding of God. I supplemented my faith. These things were in me and abounded. I wasn't blind. I wasn't short-sighted. I was zealous to confirm my call. So that there would be richly provided for me. And you could have the picture of the, the, the pearly gates opening up and trumpets blowing and a bunch of everybody waving. Big banner. Nobody would say, this is really impolite. This is very... It's very ungodly for you to suggest that you could ever please God. Well, God says, look, um, this is, you, you would never fall if you did this. 
you would be richly provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior. Somewhere along the line, I'm not saying a lot of Christians are going to line up for this event, but sometimes in history, when James and John were asking the Lord, you know, who's the greatest of the disciples? Jesus goes, what, what a bunch of tools. Can, you know, his, their mom was going, hey, can my son sit at your right hand and your left when you come into your kingdom? He doesn't go, we are an egalitarian kingdom in heaven. It's all grace. Everyone gets the same seating. He says, no, those two spots are for whom they are appointed. I'm not giving them out just because you asked. Somebody gets to sit at the Lord's right hand and left hand, and I don't know if that's a metaphor or what, but somebody gets the position of honor for the life they lived in Christ. Maybe one of the apostles, maybe one of you. Therefore, I always intend to remind you of these things. Though you know them and are established in the truth you have, this is basic Christian knowledge, he's saying, I intend to tell you about it again. Coming at you direct. Listen to the apostles. We know about righteousness. You need to know about righteousness. You need to know how you pursue it. I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to arouse you by way of reminder. He says, I always intend to remind you, and so I think it's right to remind you. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Somehow, God had showed Peter he was going to die soon. And this, so this is the early 60s, probably, A.D. He dies in about 65. And I will see to it that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And here we are, 2,000 years on, looking at the book he wrote. He says, I'm going to have a way that you could call this to mind anytime you want. It should be in your mind. Our pursuit of God should not be every time a pastor gets around to a heavy passage like this about general basic Christian growth. You have this passage in your Bible. I taught on it last five years ago. Am I being faithful to that? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, this whole book is about who you listen to. He says, we have, you have the same faith as we. We have this standing in God. We're passing this on to you. We're instructing you in the righteousness. You should think this way because this is what holiness is. And I need to remind you of this situation. He says, and I need to remind you of who we are. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What are we talking about? Luke 9. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep and kept awake, and they saw his glory in the two men with him. 
And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is well that we are here. Let us make three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he said this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. He says, that's, what, that's the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John. We saw it. That's the we we're talking about. We have borne witness to it. We have beheld him in his majesty. And we have had the prophetic word made more sure. Now, all the, a lot of the people who did not have visions of the Christ either did not know him in the person in the flesh the apostles would argue from the scriptures that they prophesied the Messiah and that Christ fulfilled it so the gospel present in the Old Testament prophesying the coming of Jesus Christ was a strong argument but it's an argument that could be made more sure he said we went through the Mount of Transfiguration we saw him in his glory so it was made more sure you will do well to pay attention to this. He said, remember, the people we're listening to are not just guys who cleverly devised a, an idea, came up with a cool philosophy, put some names on it, made up some anecdotes to fill in the blanks. Not cleverly devised myths. We saw this. We witnessed this. If you pay attention to it in those terms, that when we listen to the apostles, we're not just picking these yogis over some Hindu yogis. These are the yogis, the teachers, the apostles, the disciples who witnessed the power of God. Fulfilling prophecy as to a lamp shining in a dark place. That's how you should be. If I pay attention to it, it's because that's a luminous claim. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, we have from the time of the apostles to the present time many cleverly devised myths. It's on you. That's why he's writing to you. The second chapter, um, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. One of the things you have to watch out for is whether or not guys who can manage to pull together enough people and get a steeple on their church and hold services every week and have a low resident voice and offer you a barbecue. Is this the faith? What's... How do you know? I could be lying through my teeth. It's the glory of this moment. The 40, 50 people, Sunday to Sunday. But you have to check. The people you listen to since the time of the apostles are either representing the holiness of God or they're collecting your money. Or they're just collecting the, whatever it is, ego enjoyments. You do well to pay an attention to this because the morning star is trying to rise in your hearts, which in Revelation it calls Jesus Christ the morning star.
But whether or not it's referring to that or just that great moment when you see the morning star. Be looking for your faith in the right places. Be looking for the kind of faith you should have. Do you have the faith in the righteousness of your God? And are you living life that has faith in the righteousness of a God? Let's thank him. Dear Lord, thank you very much. Bless our time in your... In communion here, we'd ask that you'd bless our lives as we think of your son. In his name we pray. Amen.